when you're out and about in the world or you're reading things or hearing things on television or radio, you ever notice how much words you hear, how much people talk or write about things like, they use words like society, community, the public, culture, humanity. It's usually in the context of should do, like society should do this. The community needs to be protected from that. This should be a public issue. Do you ever get an uneasy feeling when people are talking like this? Like you're somehow part of a herd that's moving forward. You don't really know the destination, but you feel like you're being herded, driven. Not sure maybe where the you fits into this collective that they keep talking about. Well, stay a while and I'll try and shed some light on that. You have found the frequency of the Enemy Patrol podcast. Please stand by for new directions. Over. You find yourself at the fire of the enemy patrol, and I am the Anomic Ranger, your very own reality scout. I give you information that you can use moving forward on life's great adventure, or not. You're the captain of your soul, and you make the decisions. Consider yourself a general, and this is your campaign, this thing you call life. Anyway, this is season one, episode four, and I've broken season one into basically three parts. The first part I call the veneration of the normal man. And today in veneration of the normal man, well, there was a listener had asked me some questions about individualism and collectivism and all the different isms and where everything fits there. So... I've put together this little talk around the fire based on that. Second part that I'm going to do is called Lies Found in Society. And for the last part, I always give some practical steps that you can use to maybe gain back a little bit of agency in your life. Maybe learn to think more independently or at least learn to think differently. Now in this episode, the lie is your government has your best interest at heart. And I tell you, that's really going to blur together with the first part where we talk about all the isms. So yes, veneration of the normal man, lies found in society, and some practical steps. And we're going to get right into it. And like I said, it's going to kind of, the lies and the veneration of the normal man are going to blur together because in this day and age, if you're going to be a normal individual, Well, you got to get ready to knock down a lot of lies.
All right. Before we get into the veneration of the normal man, I just want to remind you if uh, you enjoy this time with the enemy patrol around this fire, talking about things, hearing things, well, you can read some more. You can go to my website. It's anomicranger.com. And if you want to send me an email, well, you can send me an email if we got questions or things you want to mention or things you want to talk about. You can send me an email to animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. And wherever you find your podcast, don't forget to subscribe. Uh, if you just like the podcasts, they come out twice a month. Every two weeks, I'm going to try and put these out. I'm just nicely getting started here. So maybe some of these aren't that good. They always say your first few aren't that good. But anyway, whatever, we're going to keep going and keep doing this. So don't forget to subscribe. So yeah, they're going to, the podcasts are going to come out every two weeks. And I also do some writing at anomicranger.com. So blog once a week, podcast once a week. I'll be lucky if I can keep up to that. So if you like what you hear, don't forget to leave a review or put some likes in. And most important, tell a friend, tell somebody about this. That's word of mouth is going to be the way to go. And the way to spread this out. And I don't, I don't imagine everybody's going to like these, but I think a few people, even if they don't like it, maybe they need it. So yeah, spread the word. Um, the more the merrier at enemy patrol. Anyway, veneration of the normal man. Now, if you're, if that, if that jars you a little bit hearing the word normal and, and the word man, well, then you probably need this most of all. And when I talk about normal, I you go back and listen to episode two, I believe, where I, and I think I even explained a little bit in episode one as well, what I mean by normal. So don't get excited about that. And when I talk about man, I talk about mankind. I'm not like my uh, prime minister and worried about people kind. Uh, humanity is mankind. That's the way I look at it, and that's the way I'll go from here. Anyway, I'm even going to get dig deeper and maybe even jar a few more sensibilities. Out. Let's talk about what it means to be an individual. You've heard people say, you know, oh, you got to be more of an individual. And, you know, the younger crowd, they're always trying to be an individual, and they think if they dress differently or get the right tattoo, somehow that'll make them an individual. Well, that's not what makes you an individual. It's not how you look. I mean, you can make yourself look like an individual if you are weird enough i suppose people will say there's a different individual i don't know but let's look at something on a little bit deeper level when you talk about an individual just ask yourself if you can't be you then you'll become what the herd wants you to be you know i talked about that in in the intro you know like you feel like you're being moved along <coughs> excuse me and it's pretty easy to get caught up in the herd. You know, more often than not, people don't really want to be different because they're worried about what everybody else is doing. And, you know, you get mobs or you get panics and it's like everybody is very much controlled by the crowd. You have to work at being an individual. But I mean, really, do you want to just be part of a, of a herd? Do you want to be a Borg, as they used to have on Star Trek? You know, just just uh, 
a collective that can't think, no individual can think for themselves. You know, and the reason I mention this is, is uh, like I said at the beginning, there was a listener that told me about their confusion in understanding individualism in relation to this, you know, collectivism. Like, like, like where does the individual stop? And where does the, you know, community, group, all that stuff begin? And then there was a lot of confusion about socialism, communism. I mean, there's a dozens and dozens of flavors of the collective. And I talked about uh, socialism and communism a little bit in episode two. But I decided to dig into this a little bit more. And I, I found there was a, a really kind of a shocking statistic in there. Um, as far as the millennial crowd goes, uh, according to polls, 43% of younger people in that millennial age group, 43% favor socialism. Uh, they like things that Bernie Sanders talks about, and they like the idea of more socialist government. And the strangest part about this is only 17% could even define what they meant by socialism. So 43% know they want it, but only 17% even knew what it was that they wanted. Now, I realize that, you know, people, some people have pretty loosey-goosey ideas of what socialism is. And I think maybe that's by design, that it's not well-defined, but let's define our terms Socialism is the government control of production in a society. Now, some people might say, well, that's the old definition, but no, it's still the definition. Um, you talk about uh, controlling production. I realize that goes back a few years. That goes, you know, back to when the whole thing got started. And that's what it was all about is you had men working in factories and you had the capitalists own the factories. And that's what Marx was on about was government control of production. But let's take it, it's not just production. What about healthcare? Is that production? But when the government controls healthcare, that's socialism. What about the media? What if the government controls the media? Is that socialism? It's not really production, but no, it is. It's government control of an entity that people themselves should control, not the state controlling. So yes, there's definitely different flavors and there's also different levels of socialism but well we're going to talk we're, we're going to get into that the problem with letting that particular camel stick his nose under the tent and the other statistic that goes along with these is 23 percent of young people thought socialism meant some kind of equality uh, that was the actual sentence some kind of equality i i, I found it baffling as a you know a kid who grew up when the world was divided east and west communist and 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 capitalist and east and west and the thought that they that there's people running around that have no idea what it is but they think it has something to do with equality and, and almost 50 percent are in favor of it it just i find it baffling so anyway what these stats showed me what i learned from it is Three things. A, government schools, state schools, let's not even bother to call them public schools, let's call them state schools, are terrible at educating, extremely short on history, 
but very, very effective at propaganda. That's what those stats show me. When you're in favor of something and you can't define it and you think it kind of means something else, that's a really crappy education, but very good propaganda. It also shows me B, that governments are in bed with big corporations, which has a name, it's called corporatism. So when governments get together with giant corporations and they make decisions, well, if you really want to know, that's how Nazi Germany was run. Uh, it wasn't communism. Uh, it was a form of socialism, but it was definitely a giant, powerful state that both uses and elicits help from giant corporations. That's how they run. And because of this, I would say that, that the governments have also completely muddied the idea through the state propaganda and state schools have completely muddied the idea of what capitalism is all about. Because capitalism is a dirty word now. That if you say I'm a capitalist, it's it's like saying you're a child molester or something to some people. So they really don't know when, when somebody thinks of capitalist, they think of some rich guy like you know, like the guy on the on the Monopoly, you know, with the top hat and the cigar and, and the anyway. Or maybe like Scrooge McDuck jumping into his uh, giant safe full of gold coins or bathing in $100 bills or something. That's, yeah, that's most people's idea of capitalism. So yeah, the, the uh, propaganda has, <clears throat> has done really well. And the last one, C, there's a complete lack of understanding about individual freedom and what it actually, what that means, what that entails. So that's what we're going to get into here. So let's... Let's pull a camera way back. Let's pull a camera way, way back and look down from a great height at all this stuff. And let's open things up and look at some history. Look at where a lot of these ideas come from, especially the concept of, of all these different collectivist ideas. Okay, so... Our camera's way back. We were, we're past all the, the cliches. We're past the, the uh, images that you have in your mind, the, 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 the men with little mustaches and the uniforms and the goose-stepping. And we're just down to the nuts and bolts of what makes things work. Let's ask ourselves, what is collectivism? What does it mean? Well, collectivism is an umbrella term. And under collectivism... You have all the various other isms. You have your Nazism, your Communism, your Maoism, your Bolshevism, your Leninism, your Stalinism, your Socialism, your Democratic Socialism. They're all just various flavors of Kool-Aid used to mix the poison called collectivism into the mix and get people to drink it. One of the sayings that come out of you know, kind of the more tamer versions of, of when they wrote about communism. It goes like this. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need. So from each, what they can do, to each, what they need. Sounds okay, great. But there's even a broader term than that one. If you can believe it, there's even less detail. 
And that one is the saying, the greatest good for the greatest number. So the best good you can do for the greatest number of people. Now that was written by a man uh, named Maurice Lowe, A. Maurice Lowe, way back in 1913, when a lot of these ideas were just getting started. Now this was after Marx had started writing. I think he was doing his writings in the late 1800s. This is before the Bolshevik revolution of, uh, what was it, 1917. So this is right in this time when all these ideas are percolating and, and everybody's kind of getting excited about it. And he even wrote that in a nation where the individual is nothing and society is about everything, that is a civilized society. And the other way around, if society is nothing, but the individual is everything, that that is an uncivilized society. So that statement, the greatest good for the greatest number. You know, it, it sounds good. It sounds noble. It sounds um, like if everybody could just live by that, we'd all do so much better. But let's, let's unpack it a little bit. If you really look at that statement, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. There's really no concrete meaning to that. There's none. I mean, what is good? How do you define good? And who decides? Do you vote on it? That's the big thing now. They keep democracy, democracy, democracy. That's the big thing now. Is, well, you just vote on it and whatever the, 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 whatever the votes decide, that's what you do. That's got to be the best because everybody knows democracy is, I don't know, handed down by God or something. And in reality, what is democracy but the mob rule? I mean, it's three wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner. Is it not? So, is that what we want? Do we want the mob to rule? Just think about that for a minute. You know, back when Maurice Lowe wrote that, that was back in 1913. There's a lot of history has happened since then. Now, if you want to go before 1913, there's even something there that you can think about. How many times has evil used this greatest good for the greatest number thing? What about slavery? What if 51% of the population decides that 49% are going to be the slaves? I mean, that's the majority, is it not? So ask yourself, does that make it good? And if it doesn't, then what do you use to define good? Now you get past 1913, and you get into some of these ideas, look at Nazism. The Germans felt that the greatest good was the protection of the master race. They honestly believed that was the greatest good, to cleanse their country. You know, for, at first it was just, you know, we'll, we'll just move them along or we'll take them out of positions of power or we'll do this or we'll do that. There was a thousand different ways of, of how they said they were going to do this and what it ended up with was the murder of Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and anybody that they thought was an undesirable or the wrong race or the wrong color or whatever. So because the majority of Germans and, you know, you can say that, well, it was all just about Hitler and his henchmen, but no, it required, it required the people agreeing 
to a lot of the stuff that was done. Okay. So everybody knows Nazism is bad. I mean, you just, I mean, calling somebody a Nazi in this day and age, it's still, you know, 1945 was when the Nazis were beaten down. But even to this day now, if somebody doesn't, you don't like the way they think, if they're conservative, well, you call them a Nazi. Somehow communism, they, they somehow skip that. Even though communism which very much falls into the greatest good for the greatest number mantra. Well, their history is as bad or maybe even worse than the Nazis. I mean, their re-education camps, the gulags, the firing squads, the, you know, how many people died? How many bodies were stacked? How many gallons of blood were spilled? You know, the purges, the, Pogroms, is that how you say it? Pogroms? You know, a lot of people died to bring about this utopia where finally, finally socialism would thrive and people would be equal. And well, they were going to just bring heaven to earth with this communist system. So because it was the greatest good for the greatest number and it was about equality, did that mean that Millions and millions and millions of people either starved to death or shot or sent to camps where their life expectancy was about four and a half months. Does that make it good? All right. Let's leave behind all these horrible isms and the bodies and the stench of death. And let's look at the other side to collectivism. The other side of collectivism, of course, is individualism. So what does it mean? What does individualism mean? Is it just about liberty? Is it about having to be different from everybody else? Is it about, is it about staying away from other people or not working with other people? Actually, no. This is what individualism is, individualism is about. I mean, a perfectly individual, individualistic society is really is impossible. Um, it's like some kind of a fantasy where, you know, like each dragon on his own mountain and everybody else just stays away. <clears throat> but that's not really what it's about. Because man is a social animal. We do need each other. So an individualistic society is one that rests on the premise that each person... Each individual is sovereign, autonomous, and free. Now, despite the fact that mankind's history is rife with tyrants and kings and dictators, I'm going to call this the normal state of mankind. Being an individual is about being normal, despite history. And this normal autonomy of each man is, if you think about it, it's a bulwark against slavery and theft and murder. Because if if you build a society that's based on law and and, and written into this law is that each, each man is an individual and is sovereign and is autonomous and free, well, you... You can't enslave somebody, doesn't matter what the color of their skin or if it's one person or they're small and skinny and easily beaten up. It means you can't steal from them. If you have a rule of law that says that theft is wrong, then it doesn't matter the reasoning. It doesn't matter if he's a different race. You can't steal from them. 
And of course, ultimately, you also can't kill them. Which is totally opposite to collectivism, where slavery and theft and murder are commonplace. For the good of the crowd, of course. But no, individualism stops that. So the foundation that we work from is that. That is the, that is the, the base foundation of an individualistic society. Each man is sovereign, autonomous, and free. Now, <clears throat> going forward from here, what happens is each man and a mankind, each man or woman, decides to, from that point on, voluntarily then give up some of that sovereignty and autonomy in order to work with other people. Well, what do you think is the very first place that once you're of age and you're away from par- your parents, you're now a sovereign individual and you're autonomous, what's the first place that you can think of where you would really have to give up some of that autonomy? Well, if you want to have a relationship, and especially if you want to have a close relationship, as in marriage, well, of course, you're going to have to give up a lot of your individualism and a lot of your sovereignty and a lot of your autonomy because now you go to work with another person closely. And that is a lifelong job from there. And then it just, it moves along from there. What about parentage? What about when you become a parent? Well, if you've never been a parent, then let me tell you, when a baby comes in the house, it is a tyrant. I mean, it, it rules the roost. It, it lets you know that little squalling infant demands everything. So you have to give up some of your sovereignty and autonomy. And I mean, just, just change a really crappy diaper. You'll know how much of your sovereignty and autonomy you've given up. A lot. Okay, so what's the next step from there? So now you've got, you've got a husband, you've got a wife, and you've got children. What's the next step? The next step is the community. And this is where you have the smallest social society, the family, that's been successful for thousands and thousands and thousands of years as a working unit. Now, that smallest society, the family, is a great bastion against isolation and loneliness and ignorance and oblivion. I cannot stress that how important that is to any society, any culture is that first building block, the family. So before we get to the next social unit, which is community, let's, let's, uh, let's dig into this a little bit more. This, this, what does this mean? Now, some of these terms and some of these descriptions I'm going to give for, for a family is, might bother some people, but I'm going to give it anyway, because this is the way it used to work. And this is the way it worked for thousands, thousands of years. And I'm sorry that they've changed it in the last 50 years, but you know what, let's, let's go back to what worked for so many years and was so strong and built Western society into the powerhouse that it is. Well, at the top, 
and people are going to just worry that I put that there right off the top that at the top is the husband and the father. Now <coughs> he was primarily the, the, he was the primary producer. He was the leader and he was the protector of this unit. And to do that, some of the traits he needed was to be, was to have courage and to be very resourceful. Those things held him in good stead. Now, the next part of this very strong unit is the wife and the mother. Now, she's, her jobs were primarily nurturer and a secondary producer. And women are very good at that. So her traits that held her in good stead to, to add to this nearly indestructible unit was passion and adaptability. Those two things meant that she could do the job that she needed to do, nurturing the children and, and assisting the man in, in life's mission of keeping body and soul together and getting enough sustenance together and keeping a roof over the head and everybody had to pull their weight. And that was, those were her jobs. Now the children are a little bit different. They're like third string producers. And I say that because traditionally children had to work, even if it was some little job, even if it was just picking things up, even if it was chores and anybody out there that's thinking about starting a family, keep that in your mind that you got to make your children work. If you don't make them work from a young age and it's hard to do because it's frustrating because they don't know anything. You got to start from the smallest steps and work your way up. And really, most of the jobs that you give them, you could do it in in a tenth of the time it takes you to show them how to do it, but they're never going to learn any other way. So that's the other, besides third string producers, um, their other main job was to be a student, was to learn. And the traits that children need is obedience and observance. So if you put all this together, you have this, like I said, nearly indestructible unit. I say nearly indestructible because in the last 50 years, this unit has taken hits from every side that it seems like the world will try to take, make hits at it. At it's that it's coming in. It's, it's a storm trying to destroy this powerful little unit. Okay. So let's move on then to the next size social unit, which is your community. This also has thousands and thousands of years of success. And what it is, is individuals and family units give up even more of their autonomy to, in order to participate in community. And just like the family units have a chain of command and a hierarchy, well, community also has one. They have a chain of command. You have to, otherwise it's, it's bedlam. Things just don't work. So you need a hierarchy. And that hierarchy can take on all different kinds of, of flavors. You've got chiefs and councils, mayors, whatever you want to call them. You've got people under him. You've got all different ways of organizing. And I mean, there's a a million flavors to that. Some work really well and some don't work as well. It's whatever, but there's some things come out of this. You got these strong families working together in a community. It means that local problems will find local solutions. And when you find local solutions, they will, for the most part, 
the majority will like the solutions. There'll always be some people that don't. But for the most part, local problems find local solutions. Local projects also get local resources. In other words, whenever you have a community, there's always the idea that everybody has to throw some resources in. And now it might not be taxes. It could be if a community gets together and decides they need a school, well, one person donates some land, another person brings in a load of lumber, and other people donate their time to build the schoolhouse, whatever. You get the point. People need to put their resources in in order to have a community but at least then these local projects get these local resources. Makes people a lot more happy, and I would say it's probably the most efficient way to tax. Keep your taxes closer to where the people that are paying the tax. It also means that social issues, which maybe aren't you can't fix with a load of lumber and, and a box of nails, are dealt with locally. So that means the people in the community that all know each other and know who is who. And if you have social issues, in other words, you want to decide on, on small social mores or norms, they're dealt with locally. So everybody gets together and they decide what, how they're going to handle certain social issues. And the other thing that happens, if you keep these communities small enough so that people know each other uh, or at least know of each other or at least can travel and talk to one another you can end up with a fairly big locality but it's still people that can talk to each other they're not all the way across a continent or you know 600 miles apart these individual and family units then can find a community that suits them in other words if you're in a community and they start going a little wild and you don't you don't either they're they're too stringent or they're not stringent enough, well, then you pack up and you take your family or an individual packs up and takes himself or herself and finds a community that suits them. Now, this all works. This all works until you reach a certain size. And this is where things, you can start to have problems. Because then you're into the concept of the state. Once you get multiple multiple communities and they all decide to work together under a certain idea well then you can forge a state <clears throat> now you might be thinking that well what's the difference between a state and just a community and let me tell you states love to put on the robe of a community but they're not the same thing at all so don't be fooled a state is very, very weak as a social unit. A state is only good at really two things. The first one, everybody knows about, it's force. A state is excellent at force because if you have a state and it runs border to border and it's like people can't get away from it, it means like if you're a bad guy, if you're a criminal, it doesn't matter which community you run to, there's always this state policeman or state <gasps> judicial that is going to hunt you down and make you pay for whatever crimes it was that you committed. It's also good. A state is good at, at having an army. And if it means if there's communities from, from way further away that want to come in and take over your communities, well, 
the state is there with their armies and their weapons, and they stop these outward threats. So as far as force is concerned, um, a state is really good at it. They have a national army basically to stop outward threats, and they have a national police, judiciary, whatever you want to call it, to stop internal threats. The other thing a state does well, and this is probably more important in the more modern society than it used to be, is what I call connectivity. In other words, major infrastructure control. Now, not implementation, not actually building and running things, but at least having a hand in deciding. Like if if you want to build a railroad right across a country or you want to build a highway system across a country or you want to build giant dams or giant anything that's going to affect a lot of like multiple communities then it's fine to have a state in there that also has the force behind it you know the, the force of power behind it in order to implement these big things that are going to it's going to affect a lot of a lot of communities and a lot of people. Now this is, it does get dicey here because if the state gets too much power, well, then they can force something through that the people don't really want. So we're already getting dangerous when we get into connectivity. Uh, Same with the other place connectivity works is it's the face of your nation to the rest of the world. Again, doesn't have to be implementation but as far as treaties and trade agreements and all this kind of stuff, there's a lot of ways that a, the state can do a good job here. Well, they're the only ones that can do the job. Otherwise, what you have is this giant collective of small communities and it'd be very hard to, um, to deal with other countries. That's the way I look at it. But in both those, force and connectivity... Individualism has to be the foundation. In other words, that state has to be there in order to protect that individual sovereignty in each person and allow each person to give their sovereignty over to the collective in the form of either family or community out of their own free will. But you always got to be careful of something that is built on force. Now, this is why, if you're thinking like, well, why is it so important besides the fact that individualism is this bulwark against slavery and theft and murder, and it's the best way for individuals to move forward, what's wrong with the idea of the collective? What's wrong with making just one big giant community and everybody gets together and, and you know, according to Marxism, this is supposed to create this utopia. But here's a few reasons why it doesn't. Collectivism really is herd control. And it's run by its own hierarchy. I know they like to talk about, you know, socialism is, is um, it, it gets rid of that. It gets rid of this idea of a hierarchy. But it doesn't. It just changes the hierarchy. It just changes the hierarchy from, from certain individuals to other individuals. And that's the thing you got to remember. There is no such thing as a collective. In the end, it's just the state. No matter what propaganda you hear, no matter how much they want to cloak it in that this is a giant community, it's not, okay? 
You know, you've heard, uh, I think it's an old saying, but I, I believe it was Hillary Clinton made it famous when she talked about it takes a village to raise a child. Okay, a village. I, Depending on the village, I might go along with that. But the state is not a village. The state is power. So really, when she's mouthing those words, what she's talking about is the state ownership of your children. How about another term? How about this one? I love this one, public media, because, of course, Canada has the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or the Communist Broadcasting Corporation, however you want to look at, at it. Is there really such a thing as public media? Now, I suppose you could have public media if you have a, a, um, a media that's, that people just donate money to. I guess, I guess you could call it a public media of sort. It's not for the whole public. It's just for the donating public. But nine times out of ten, if you have public media, it's getting tax dollars that are stolen from individuals and communities by force to run this giant, what becomes a state propaganda platform. And, you know, it doesn't have to be just a state propaganda platform. It can be just a propaganda platform for, for whoever is lusting after power. Like, as far as the CBC is concerned, I don't think it's really a state propaganda platform unless there's progressives in the government. Then it's a state propaganda platform. If it's a conservative government, it just becomes a progressive propaganda platform. Because it seems like these leftist progressives are the ones that uh, are running most of the media in this day and age. Okay, what about public schools? Everybody's heard, yeah, public schools, public schools. They're not public schools. They're state schools, okay? They might have started out as public schools. I remember um, stories when my mother was a child and she wanted to be a teacher, but she went to school in a one-room schoolroom. And that one-room schoolroom was built by the community, um, remember I talked about somebody brings a load of lumber and somebody else donates time and somebody donates land. Yeah. The first school she went to was built just like that. And then the community got together and they, and they looked for a teacher and they hired a teacher and they put the teacher in the schoolroom and the kids all went there. They rode horses or they walked and they went to school. There was usually one uh, older child that had to get there earlier and light the fire because this part of the world is very cold. So to get there an hour early and get the fire going. And even so, the school was uh, uh, cold for quite a bit of the morning until the, the heater warmed it up. Anyway, you get the point. At this point, maybe it was a public school because it certainly was that the parents could get together and decide on curriculum. I mean, they'd get together with the teacher and the teacher would make suggestions and people would look at it and they'd go, yeah, this bunch of books, yeah, buy these books. And she'd say, well, I need these maps. And okay, you got those maps. And, and then she'd go about teaching. So yes, the public, the community very much had a say in what went on in the schools. Nowadays, <clears throat> this was slowly taken away. I mean, you still have your, your PTAs and you still have your, they still bring citizens together as a group and they pretend that somehow public has input. But in the last 20 years, even 50 years, I would say that they have, public has very little say in what's being taught in the schools. 
And then what about businesses? <clears throat> they talk about publicly owned businesses and they, you know, like other countries like uh, Venezuela and places, you know, the government takes over the, takes over the oil industry or takes over the power industry or takes over whatever industry. And they say it's for the people. It's for the people. Oh, look at the, the money coming in. It's for the people. No, no, it's not. It's for the state. Public ownership is just state ownership. Now, I would say that you could have a, a community business if your community got together and they decided to create their own local food co-op or something like that. Okay, you can call that a publicly owned company. But even those companies, even these co-ops, once they get big enough, they're just run on their own bureaucracy. Now, they're maybe they're not run by the state, but they may as well be. So, really, in the end, there's no such thing as a, as a group mind. You're just dealing with individuals uh, in, a, in a hierarchy of the state. So, what is collectivism then? Collectivism is simply the government ownership of you. Lock, stock, and barrel. Your property, your children, your speech, your thoughts, and even, in the end, even your life. I mean, if you look at some of these other um, collectivist-type societies, you know, your Nazism and your communism, really, in the end, they had power to take your life. So that is collectivism. And I can't stress enough how the individuals and the families and the communities have to limit the power of the state. Now, this is where it's going to blur together because it's time to go on to the lie of the day. And the lie of the day is your government has your best interests at heart. All right, let me repeat that lie. Your government has your best interests at heart. Now, this one's a difficult one because basically if you're under the age of 70 years old, you're brainwashed. You may as well just own up to it. With state schooling and state programs, Hollywood and, and the media industrial complex, um, even family, your family and friends, they're brainwashed too. So they repeat a lot of this stuff. And the message is always the same. This is the message is that the government is the best and even the only solution to your problems. But the solutions, when a government helps with a solution, there's always a hook in it. Always. And it's really bad when the government is complicit in causing the problem in the first place, and then they come along with a solution to fix the problem. And always the hook is the government needs more power and it needs more money. 
that's the hook always. And you know, it's funny because there's other entities that could have solutions to problems. There's other groups. There's, you know, these communities themselves, uh, there's individuals, there's churches, there's clubs, there's different uh, community type organizations and fraternities. But it's funny how in this day and age that these groups are often met with suspicion and definitely met with regulation. In other words, if, if you, you know, have a problem in your community and you put together a group and you're going to go solve your problem, you're going to find yourself facing a government official with a list of regulations of how you have to go about it. And sometimes those regulations are so onerous that, well, small communities can't even afford to solve their own problems. The other problem is, is governments always want to grow. They always want more money. They want more power. Once they get the more money and the more power to solve more problems, they require more bureaucracy. That means hiring more people and designing more programs. And the more they do this, the more intricate they get, and the more they become ingrown and feed on themselves. In the end, individuals don't fit very well. Individuals in this mix are messy governments don't like individualism they like people that just toe the line and do as they're told and fit into the program now also to go against your brainwashing i want you to think about this next point that there really is no such thing as a thinking feeling government entity Governments like to talk about it. They like to give the heading like, like, oh, you know, our, our council on sad mothers has put together a plan that will blah, 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 blah. And they make it sound like this program or this group or this new edict or this new law actually has feelings for the people that they're regulating to or making a program for. And you know what? It just doesn't work that way. Because in the end, you're not going to face a thinking, feeling, like a, an ame- like an amoeba, like a blob that has thinking, feeling things about it and is run by the government. No, you are always facing an individual. You are always interacting with an individual. You're always across the desk from somebody who simply works for the state. So you're just facing another person. So when you think about your Department of Motor Vehicles or whatever you want to call your licensing bureau or your post office or whatever else you have in your area that is run by the government, just think about your interactions there and what they're like. I mean, if you need something and you go to a private company and you meet the representative, he's really helpful. He really, really wants to help. That's because he wants your money. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you go in, if you're shopping for a new car and you walk into a car dealership, well, he definitely wants your money. So he's going to be more than helpful. He's going to be bending over backwards to help you. But when you go into a government entity and you need help, they don't need your money. They've already got your money. They already stole it. Now they can use the term civil servant. And it used to be more important years ago when, when governments were smaller and had a different attitude they called themselves civil servants but that is very much disappearing they are acting more like your 
overlords than your servants. And I think anybody that's honest knows that. Another point is government is the very least efficient way to solve any problem. Why? Because there's really no incentive. There's no incentive to solve the problem. In fact, if they can keep the problem going, then that government person can keep their job. I mean, do you really think that people at work in the welfare office would would like it if suddenly there was a miracle happened and nobody was on welfare anymore? They'd be out of a job. And whenever the government does something, it's always a monopoly. They, the government does not like competition. So they will always be at war with the, the private interests that do the same job that they do, always. Let me tell you a story. I was talking to this individual, and he was actually a parole officer. And it was a, it was a good talk. It was very, I found it very interesting because I, you know, I'd always, you know, you see parole officers on movies and television and stuff. And, but to actually talk to a, a, an actual parole officer, it was, I found it, if not fascinating, at least engaging. And he told this interesting thing. He was talking about, you know, this type of person that comes in and, and, and oh, you know, that says you got to do this and you got to do that and you got to, you know, check in with them and they're supposed to phone you and they don't phone you. And, and throughout this talk, he talked more and more. He, he finally said, you know, I much prefer the career criminals in dealing with them because they know the system. So I know I'm not going to have a lot of troubles. The, the worst ones are, are first offenders. They're horrible. They are so much work and, and, and you got to remind them of things all the time and you got to. So I, I totally understood this. This makes perfect sense. You know, I, I mean, I work a job and I don't like problems and I don't like, you know, having to do extra work on something that should be easy. And if there's another type of thing that just makes it easy, like he was talking about somebody that's been in the system before knows the ropes, but you just think about that for a minute. What, what, the government is actually supposed to be doing there, you know, rehabilitating people. You would think that the chance to, you know, a first offender to really make an influence on their life would be the most important. And the career criminal, well, well, you get the point. The point is, is that once the system is there, it's very, very hard to change it to the way it's supposed to work. And that includes the judicial system. It includes the welfare system. They're all about the same. They have no interest in really solving the problems. And the last thing I'll leave you with on this, the last idea is that governments, not only are they inefficient and unfeeling, and they always have a propensity to grow, well, they're the most dangerous thing on this planet for individuals and families. And collectivism is the most dangerous form of government. If you don't believe me, just look at the last 150 years of history. Did you know that you are 20 times, you had a 20 times greater chance in the last 150 years of being killed by your own government than by crime? 20 times. You know, people worry about crime and crime gets bad in their neighborhood and somebody gets mugged and it's like, oh my goodness. And this, you know, people are almost panicky about it. And yet they will turn around and just claim the government's their friend and want more of it. So if you have an area of that's bad for crime and you say, well, you know, 20 times more crime would be great. That's what 
encouraging government growth really when it comes down to that's what it is actually you had a six times greater chance of being killed by your own government as a civilian than of dying in all the wars combined in the last 150 years think about that one six times greater chance and of course like i said governments are one of the most dangerous things on the planet and collectivism is the most dangerous form of government and this is going by statistics by how many people collectivist governments have killed in the last 150 years so how do we conclude this well we conclude it by saying that all governments have a propensity for growth all governments are inefficient and they have a constant lust for power and that really is the achilles heel of collectivism this wanting to grow and a constant lust for power now i believe there's coming a day if individual sovereignty survives this push towards socialism and one man says to another the government should do something about this or that that the other man will spit on his shoes and walk away and if socialism wins well they'll probably both be shot for standing around in the street and talking about the government okay some practical steps i like to give these all the time and at the end of each thing so because you talk about this stuff and people say well what can i do what should i do well are you getting away from your screens and your electronics getting into the real world for a couple hours a day or one day a week or both that's a really good start are you getting some physical exercise in without screen time you know, doing some walking, maybe lifting some things. Working those muscles. That's reality. Are you getting in some nature time when you're walking? Do you go to a park? Do you go camping? Do you, do you get out and breathe clean air? And I mean, even if you can't get out of a city, even if you can get to a park and look at a tree, that's something. And staying away from your screens while you're doing it. And so I've also been giving some mental exercises, listing some of your skills and abilities that you can do. And also I mentioned listing some things that you're thankful for in life. Kind of important. All right. Well, I got some more here. And actually I have a long list, but I think maybe what I'll do is I'll just give maybe two on this one. Here's some things you can think about stop caring what other people think now i know if you're of the younger crowd this one's hard to do it seems like when you're in your youth it's like you're always worried about what other people think but you may as well get over it right now you know what it doesn't matter what other people think start judging you by what you do better each day number two stop following bad role models you know, in this day and age, I see so many role models or some kind of a movie star or something like that. That's not who you want for role models. You want a role model that has lived a good portion of their life and they've done fairly well and they've kept an even keel and there may be more of the ones worth listening to. 
So I'm going to leave it at that. And I will give a few more small steps like that to become an individual. Keep working on dropping that screen time. And like I said before, if you can, if you want to look at more of what I have here, I just talked about getting off your screen time and then I'm giving you a screen to look at, but you can find me at anomicranger.com. Uh, that's my website. Um, or you can send me an email if you have a question or a comment, something you want to say at animepatrolhq at yahoo.com. And while I'm at it, I'll remind you to subscribe and review and like and all that kind of stuff. And I'm going to remind you till we meet again. Keep an edge in your knife. Keep your matches dry. And remember that life is a one-time adventure. And you got to learn to live it that way. So, vaya con Dios, eh? <laughs>